2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. This historic sell-off continues. January is on pace to be the 10th worst month ever for the NASDAQ. We're down 15% and in total down about 17% from those November highs. The Dow was down more than 1,000 points at the lows in the last hour. It's in the red for what could be the seventh straight day. We'll unpack all of these moves. We'll also talk about some of the global pressures contributing to the sell-off. And Peloton has in many ways been the poster child of the sell-off, though it's had plenty of its own problems to deal with. Now an activist firm wants to oust the CEO. We'll have the latest and the other corporate targets, you can see them behind me there, that are under pressure. Peloton, by the way, has been also a bit of a tell for the market today, and it is back in positive territory. It's up two and a half percent, Dom, so we've got that.
3: That activist story, Kelly, as you mentioned, is probably one of the few places that you're going to find some green at all in this market right now. Just a a few moments ago before I came on set here, I was looking at the S&P 500. There were roughly only about 16 or 17 stocks in the green in the entire index the S&P 500, roughly 20 stocks in the green right now, it gives you an idea of how broad-based the sell-off is. Uh, uh, again, the Nasdaq Composite has been arguably the epicenter of this. Right, the growth trade, technology trade, as you can see here at the lows of the session. The Nasdaq composite is down 476 right now. That's three and a half percent. It was down around 670 points at the lows at one point today. So, again, off the lows of the session. But even then, we're still down three and a half percent. And by the way, if you look at this sector heat map behind me, check that out. Because technology, communication services, and discretionary are pretty decently by far the worst performing sectors out there. If you want to take a look at some of the stocks at the center of the sell-off so far today, the worst performers have been high growth-oriented ones. Take a look over here. Moderna, the worst performing stock in the S&P, a COVID vaccine maker, but one that had run up a lot during the course of the last couple of years. Netflix, continued weakness there. Subscriber growth, a real concern there. NVIDIA down about 8% right now. Meanwhile, what's working? Consumer staples companies like grocery store chain Kroger and then Dollar Tree in the dollar stores up about 2% right now. And we cannot forget what's happening with this kind of risk aversion trade and what's happening with the cryptocurrency side of things. Because if you look at Bitcoin and Ethereum, yes, Ethereum, Ether has had a bigger run over the course of the last year. But the orange line and the white line, respectively, Bitcoin in the white and Ether in the orange are now down roughly 50% from their recent record highs. And just to give you an idea of the one day action in the last 24 hours, the estimates Kelly, are that roughly 130 billion dollars of market cap has been wiped out of the entire crypto space. So watch those and of course all the associated stocks that go along with them. I'm talking Coinbase, I'm talking Robinhood, MicroStrategy, Block, PayPal and others. So it certainly wants to watch their call back over to you.
2: All right, Dom, thank you. My next guest says the sell-off is revealing some pockets of value. Joining me is David Bonson. He's the Chief Investment Officer at the Bonson Group. David, welcome. What do you buy today?
4: Well, it's getting to a point where there's quite a bit that one could buy. It's not so sector selective. We'll see if that full capitulation comes. It's interesting to me, Kelly, that energy is still up on the year, uh, even with these last five or six days. And it's further interesting that bond yields are dropping and in fact have dropped about 13 basis points in the tenure over the last five days. So this whole narrative that equities are dropping because the Fed's raising rates and the bond yield's going higher is completely inaccurate. Hmm. The stocks are dropping because certain parts of the market got way overpriced. So, but would you agree that the catalyst for the
2: correction is the normalization and the Fed's tightening?
4: No, I would not. I think that the fact that the Fed was going to be raising rates this year was known a month ago, three months ago, six months ago. And not just known, really known. Smart money, dumb money, retail, and everybody knew there was going to be some form of tightening, some form of normalization. I actually don't even really agree with the word normalization, although I definitely know what you mean by it, and I agree with that. They're headed towards a place of a more normal path. But I think normalization would have a Fed funds rate much more than where they're going to go. And a normalization of the balance sheet would get us back to 4000000000000 trillion. They're not even going to get close to that. So they're going to be tightening on the margins. But no, I think the catalyst here is that valuations got stretched and valuations always have to adjust it's just we never know when. So what are your conclusions about
2: the Fed from all of that? It sounds like you want them to be more aggressive than what the market is currently even talking about.
4: It, it, I, that's a fair way to put it, but I don't think it's that I want them to be because all I can do with client capital is invest around what I believe will be. And I do not believe the Fed is going to be more aggressive than they're saying. And in fact, I don't believe they're even going to get to four Uh, rate hikes this year. I think they'll end up chickening out at around 3. But look, the high yield bond spreads as of this morning were only about 290 basis points. Credit is not yet uh, reacting to this sell-off. I assume things have widened a bit in the last few hours, but not by much. Uh, 2018 was sort of the level where you saw what happens. Credit spreads blowing out and the Fed responding. We're not even close to that yet. So I think the Fed will do a marginal a uh, reduction of balance sheet through roll-off, and I think they'll get about three rate hikes done this year.
2: You also s- sort of describe this, it se- sounds to me, as like a healthy, maybe a needed correction, certainly in some parts of the market that had, you know, run too far. So you said you like energy here, it's still green on the year. What else is interesting to you? Where should people go a- as this kind of recalibration continues?
4: Well, it's tough for me to answer because I really believe people should go now where they should always be, which is in higher quality. We're not big speculators. And I do think, Kelly, most of what we're seeing right now is speculation getting hammered. And so what we call at our firm, shiny object investing, you see crypto down 50 percent from a very recent high. This is not the stuff stability is made of. So we prefer companies that have stronger balance sheets, and that could be in any sector. We're not anti-technology. I talk on your show a lot about liking old tech companies that have good dependable earning streams. Some of those fang names were very expensive. They've come in a lot. Some haven't yet. So the primary criticism I have is of the real shiny object stuff that was just purely speculative, way ahead of its skis, and now has gotten slaughtered. We have no appetite to go into those types of names. We want to focus on quality throughout this year and for us that means dividend growing names quick
2: final word it's been a rough month for the financials which should be a big beneficiary you still like jpm you like Truist. what would you say here about the prospect for financials to perform well and for rates to i mean you tell me what you think they're going to do then
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, the narrative that uh, a wider yield curve and having the long end go higher is supposed to help financials. JP and Truist, more so JP, are down on the month. We would absolutely be buying there. And the two names that have really gotten cheap in financials are not the big banks, but asset managers, Blackstone and Apollo, Hmm. have gotten very cheap as well. So we really like those uh, financial names, but we would have liked them even apart from the sell-off. Now they've just gotten more appetizing.
2: Very interesting. David, great to have you here today. Thanks for your perspective. Thanks, Callie. David Bonson with the Bonson Group. Speaking of bond yields, two years went up for auction at the top of the hour. Rick Santelli is here with the results and the way it has affected yields. Rick?
5: You know, this is a very strange auction. First of all, I'm going to give it an A-, which is a pretty good grade, and you'll hear why in a moment. Uh, $54 two-year notes, the auction yield, 0.99%. It was a bit lower than the market was trading. The one-issued market, lower yield, higher price. That helps the grade tremendously. Uh, Let's go through the highlights, shall we? Uh, 2.81 bid to cover, that's a biggie. That's the best since April of 2020. But here's the metric that really caught my eye. Indirect bidders, okay, foreign entities, the ones we really should be paying very close attention to, 66%. That's the best since the summer of 2009. The one fly in the ointment were direct bidders at 9.4%. That's the weakest since March of 2020, but it's well below 10 auction average. If you look at 24.6% for dealers, that's pretty solid. So one bad metric, several extraordinarily good metrics. A-minus. And what is it telling us? It's telling us Wednesday last week, the 20-year, aggressive bidders. The two-year, you talk about the biggest dagger falling from the sky, short maturities, most likely tied to the Fed. And everybody's talking about the Fed. Oh my God, they haven't really done anything yet. So investors really stepping up, thinking the current activity may somehow affect the way the markets are trading, maybe this week's Fed meeting. But in the end, the two topics that I'm hearing the most of today is geopolitics and the balance
2: sheet. If you really want to do something, quit buying more treasuries now. <laughs> Kelly, back to you. We will have more on geopolitics in just a minute, Rick. In fact, let me ask you, though, because what David Bonson just said was very interesting The main market narrative right now is the Fed has sparked this sell-off because of its tightening, and so everyone's speculating if they're going to have to back off because the market's down so much. Bonson said that's not what's happening at all. These stocks just collapsed under their own weight. They ran up too much, in which case it would have no implications for the Fed backing off. And if anything, maybe they maintain or, or stay aggressive and hawkish.
5: That all sounds very easy to say, and I don't necessarily disagree with the logic But the Fed and the free put with equities, that goes back to Alan Greenspan. I'm not so sure how much nerve they have. But I completely agree that somewhere along the line since 2007 and 2008, and all the sins committed against the free market where people actually have price discovery, there has to be a cost,
2: there has to be pain, and we are experiencing that right now. All right, Rick, thank you. It's good to see you. We appreciate it. Rick Santelli. As people try to make sense of global growth, China has all of a sudden become a spot of concern. As they continue to battle COVID, health officials in Beijing are in full emergency mode, especially with the Olympics approaching. Eunice Yoon is there with the latest on the ground. Eunice?
6: Thanks, Kelly. Well, COVID testing tents like the one behind me are springing into action all over Beijing. Uh, more districts in the city of 21 million people are uh, requiring that residents get tested. In fact, two million people were tested on Sunday alone. Now, that testing was conducted in a part of the capital that had the heaviest concentration of cases, which is only at about two dozen at this stage. Now, authorities are also tracking down Anyone in the city who has uh, recently purchased and by in, just in the past couple of weeks um any type of medication that uh, treats fever or other symptoms, so it could be as simple as ibuprofen. And then those people are getting text messages to alert them to get COVID tests. Um, officials are especially concerned about two big events that are coming up in the next couple of days. Uh, first, there's a Lunar New Year holiday that's going to start in about a week. It's a heavy travel period and a big shopping period as well. And then, of course, a few days later, it's the Beijing Olympics that's going to begin. And already, um, Kelly, 72 cases have been reported inside what is supposed to be a closed loop bubble among the staff.
2: Kelly? Well, everyone watching to see what happens there, not just for that event, obviously, but the implications for growth uh, in the markets as well. Eunice, we appreciate it. It's great to see you. Eunice Yoon reporting. And pandemic-related lockdowns have been slowing growth in China, leading the central bank to cut rates. And it's not just China that's more dovish on tightening than the Fed. Others are also happy to watch the U.S. take the lead. Steve Leisman joins us now with more. Steve?
1: Yeah, Kelly, this is fascinating. While the Fed is expected to affirm market expectations this week for faster rate hikes and even balance sheet reduction this year, Fed Chair Powell's counterparts in Europe and Japan... Happy to hold the door open and watch the Fed walk through it. Speaking last week, European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde and Japanese Bank Governor Haruhiko Kurodo signaled no intent to join the tightening party anytime soon. Carl Weinberg, a global economist at High Frequency Economics, tells me the key word is divergence. Central bank moves are not going to be synchronized. We have divergence amongst economies and divergence amongst central banks and inflation and labor market conditions. All right, let's look around the world now. What you see there is the blue. Japan and Europe not expected to tighten anytime soon. The U.S. Central Bank could move as soon as March. Canada, as soon as this week. Mexico tightened already in December. The Bank of England looks likely to hike in early February, along with Russia, Brazil, and Chile, according to Refinitiv, that is. Meanwhile, China cut recently, as Kelly said, and India expected to cut. Bruce Kasman from J.P. Morgan tells me that he expects Europe to follow the Fed six to nine months from now, and that most central banks, except for, of course, Japan, will have to respond to labor tightening eventually. But for the moment, the U.S., with higher inflation and lower unemployment than most other developed nations, is going to lead the way. That could explain, Kelly, the interest we had from foreign buyers in our uh, auction today.
2: That is a great point. And I wonder what it means for the dollar, most importantly. Haven't seen it. Should have asked Rick about this. But If we strengthen because we're ahead of the pack, that's going to be another headwind for stocks, in the short term at least.
1: Yeah, it it could... It could well be for some stocks, obviously, Kelly, as you know, some stocks are going to do better uh, with a stronger dollar, some with a weaker dollar. Uh, Be a little careful about what actually moves uh, the dollar. But overall, theoretically, this should be uh, better for the U.S. dollar uh, with the U.S. strengthening and if it gets inflation under control. And that also looks to be, by the way, bad for something else. You're probably talking about this show, which is crypto.
2: Yes, we will definitely get to that. All right, Steve, we appreciate it. Steve Leisman, Uh, Still ahead, Russian stocks are falling over increased tensions with Ukraine. The RSX Russia ETF down 8% today. It's down 20% so far this year. We'll have all the latest next. Plus, we're tracking this market sell-off with a closer look at the slump in semis. The SMH ETF well off its high of 3.18. We're trading in the 2.60s right now. Keeping an eye on Bitcoin, which has gone green. This may be the tell for how the rest of the afternoon goes for the markets. It's up 2%, Netflix still lower by 7%. Big declines there in tech across the board. As we head to break, take a look at the biggest decliners in the NASDAQ 100, Airbnb, Moderna, and that Netflix trade I mentioned. We're back in a moment.
9: Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager.
2: Welcome back to The Exchange. Plenty of nervousness in this market already before we even get to a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine. President Biden having a call with European leaders in just about two hours' time to discuss the situation. The State Department has ordered families of U.S. diplomats stationed there to leave the country, has issued a travel warning as well. Russian stocks are down nearly 20 percent since the start of the year. Here to talk market strategy, Conrad Saldana is senior portfolio manager of the Neuberger-Berman Emerging Markets Equity Fund. And for more analysis, we are also joined by Admiral James Stavridis, former Supreme Allied Commander at NATO, and M- NBC, MSNBC Chief International Security and Diplomacy Analyst. Welcome to you both, Conrad. Let's talk tactical first. Uh, this has been a really tough stretch uh, for Russian stocks, obviously from other parts of emerging markets. What are you telling investors right now?
10: I think we're st- we're staying the course on a fundamental basis. Obviously, what you've seen right now that's transpired has been geopolitics, just overwhelming mm-hmm. any of the benefit that you're seeing on fundamentals. This should have been the perfect opportunity. For Russia, it's stocks where you look at Russia Inc. on a macro basis, current account, fiscal surplus, but more importantly from a stock standpoint, you're looking at these companies that are trading low mid single digit P's and generating 20% free cash flow yields. You're probably going to get back the market capitalization in dividends over the next two years, but obviously all of it is right now. Uh, sidetracked with the uh, uh, geopolitical tension issue um, uh, that we're currently seeing. Yeah, Creates the opportunity for emerging markets and creates the opportunity where fundamentals will finally come through, but obviously in all of this volatility, uh, it it definitely is getting lost on a day like today. That's in interesting
2: what you said. You think the yield will compensate for some of the declines. I know you guys have, mm. think about double the exposure to Russia as is, is typical for emerging markets. So certainly in, heavily invested there. Admiral, let me turn to you as investor. This very hard risk for markets to price. What would your advice to investors be here? Uh, do they just kind of ignore the situation unless it completely escalates? Or do you have any guess what's about to happen?
11: I'd put it this way, uh, 25% chance we see an all-out blitzkrieg by Vladimir Putin. He goes to Kiev, he changes the regime, the whole thing really uh, dramatically upends European security, 25%. I think there's a 50% chance that he will conduct some kind of invasion, carve out a chunk. That one may settle back down, but even there... That's a 75% chance of massive sanctions going into place on the Russian oil and gas sector, on Russian oligarchs. And there ain't going to be nothing but air whistling through Nord Stream 2 for a long time if that happens. 25% chance, Kelly, we may be able to work through this diplomatically. That's how I'd score it right now.
2: Conrad, does that kind of, you know, jive with how you guys see the situation? And what does this mean for energy prices? Does it leave them fundamentally higher than they should be?
10: Uh, Kelly, to to a point, uh, I think it's it is going to be structurally much high. If you think of countries in Europe, obviously coming from a U.S. perspective, i you know obviously uh, I'll leave it to, to Admiral uh, to talk about uh, the geopolitics. But I think that's a big blow for Europe, right? In terms of into the winter months, it's obviously timing-wise. Uh, you look at whether it's opportunistic or not; seems like it. But uh, for Europe and and for massive sanctions like that, it's going to hurt Europe significantly more. Uh, you know, in my mind, that, that, and and obviously will push up uh, oil and gas prices, especially you look at Europe is paying almost the highest they're paying for yeah, gas yeah. at this point. So I think fundamentally, I feel that uh, some of the more independent producers like the Luke Oil, we we own, Kelly, to your point, we're double-weight, but keep in mind Russia's only 3%, right? Sure. Uh, of MSCI, and we had six. But I think that's where the opportunity is, yeah. because They're low cost producers. And I think it doesn't do anybody good. It's going to be a negative for for the global economy and especially much more of a negative to Europe, if you will.
2: Well, maybe also helps explain why energy is still higher on the year and what's been a terrible market. You know, have some of these supports as well from that situation. Admiral. You know, not that you're in the business of, of giving advice to investors here, but what should what are we? I mean, is it this afternoon's call? I mean, what are the main catalysts or dates on the calendar or main points that we should all be watching uh, to understand which way this thing is going?
11: Well, first disclosure, I'm actually on the board of Newberger Berman's uh, mutual fund con- con- uh, <laughs> That's right. complex, so I know Conrad quite well, and it's great to see him. Um, But there's no house view on this. But I'll give you three things to watch. Number one is cyber. Watch for cyber attack as the leading edge of what Putin may or may not decide to do because he may feel there's some uh, deniability in going that route. Number two, watch uh, Putin's troop movements. If he's adding any more, and in particular, watch for medical support. So far, we haven't seen those field hospitals move forward. Hmm. That would be a key in my mind that he's about to close the switch. And number three, um, watch alliance solidarity. So watch the statements coming out of uh, NATO. Listen to the NATO secretary general. He's got the best pulse on what's going on around the alliance. It's a very delicate moment. Um, I would say probably a good one to, to hit pause Uh, take a deep breath and hope diplomacy prevails here.
2: All right, then, Conrad, I'll give you a final word on this. Since you do emerging markets, broadly speaking, do you have any advice you'd leave investors with here who are wondering, given all the moves that we've now seen in international equity markets over the past month, what opportunities, what are the best opportunities that you see?
10: Sure. Uh, And and thanks for that, Kelly, because I know you were talking about uh, China just before Mm -hmm. I I, I dialed in. And I I think when when I look out longer term, fundamentally China, where people were in love with China and the internet stocks, and now it's kind of despondency. Typically in emerging markets, when you see those situations, those are the best opportunities, right? When there's kind of blood on the street, things look fairly dire. China for us uh, at this moment looks like good idiosyncratic opportunities. Um, Valuations are very supportive, uh, and you're into an easing cycle. But keep in mind that China was very tight before this. So they have that room to now ease across a lot of emerging markets today. So I think that's where the fundamental difference would be. And India for us remains the structural best story, I think globally, uh, and uh, especially with the financial sector in India. And I think Russia it is obviously geopolitics today, but uh, longer term, I think, uh, and I'm hopeful that the fundamentals uh, play out and offers that opportunity um, at the moment despite significant volatility.
11: Yeah, that's a, it's a tough Can call. Can I just, Kelly, add one point to my friend Conrad's excellent uh, dissertation, which would be, in terms of China, I think we're headed into a year of living quietly with China because President Xi has the 20th Party Congress coming up in November. He's not looking for a big uh, operation. Some have said, oh, watch uh, Russia go into Ukraine and China will follow uh, in Taiwan, I don't see that at all. I think China remains pretty stable. Bet
2: very, very interesting. Maybe some consolation to investors in that K Web down <laughs> another four percent today. Gentlemen, thank you both. We really appreciate your time, Admiral James Stavridis and Conrad Saldana with Newberger Berman. All right, let's talk with uh, a little bit more about Russia and how the U.S. does plan to respond to troop escalation. Elon Moy spoke with the Deputy Treasury Secretary and is here with some details
7: on what exactly is being considered. Hi, Elon. Hi, Kelly. Well, the Treasury Department has already started working on a package of potential sanctions against Russia if it were to further invade Ukraine. As you mentioned, I spoke with Treasury Deputy Secretary Wally Adeyemo before the sell-off this morning, and I asked him directly if markets had been adequately pricing in the risk from Russia. Here's what he told me.
12: I won't speak to where the markets are and what they're pricing in, but what I can say is that we're prepared in collaboration and coordination with our European allies to meet a significant cost to Russia if they were to invade Ukraine. But the choice really belongs to the Kremlin. They can choose diplomacy, which is our preferred route, or they can choose the route that leads to economic consequences.
7: Now, Adeyema last spoke with the Ukrainian finance minister on Friday. He was at the Treasury Department during the run-up in tensions in 2014. Treasury also imposed sanctions on Russia back then, but clearly they haven't stopped President Putin.
12: And what I can tell you is that the sanctions package that we're considering now is far broader and more significant than what we did then. and would have a far more significant impact on the Russian economy, both in the short term and over the long term.
7: I also asked Adeyema about the possibility of blocking access to the SWIFT system or of even banning exports of American-made products.
12: Every option is on the table, and we're considering those options not just here in the United States and not taking actions just here, but our European counterparts and our allies in Europe are willing to take actions with us.
7: Kelly, ultimately, he believes that sanctions remain a powerful tool. But clearly, some critics believe that they haven't served their deterrence purpose. Back to you. Well, Elon, a very
2: important detail to bring us today. We appreciate it. Elon Moy reporting in Washington. All right, let's get a quick check on the markets. At the session lows today, the Dow was down 1,115 points. So we're 300 points off the lows. We're down 790 for the moment. That's a 2.3% drop. NASDAQ's still the hardest hit. And look at the NASDAQ decline from the year highs. We're down 17.5%. The S&P's down 11% from the highs. The Dow's down just shy of 10%. And every sector is in the red today with the biggest drops in tech, healthcare, and utilities. Energy is the only sector still positive on a year to date basis, like we've been saying. The oil and gas names are holding up, relatively speaking, in today's action. Exxon, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, they're seeing declines of 1% to 2%, and they're down less uh, or up to 10% from their recent highs. But again, Exxon's down less than 5%. Meme stocks, unfortunately, different story. GameStop down about 10%. It's below 100. At one point, it was in the 80s. I think I saw it hit about 89, uh, currently up there at 96. AMC is down about 11% and I believe went below $15 a share earlier. It's back above 16, but both of these names are 80% off their recent highs. And this is a 52-week chart, so it might not even capture the tippy top. Robinhood also hitting a new all-time low, threatening to break below $10 a share earlier. We're back to about $1,250. It's 85% below its high of $85 a share from back in August. And still ahead, as mentioned, the Dow off its lows, which were more than 1,100 points. We're going to take a closer closer look at the sectors helping spur the turnaround. Bet you didn't realize Bitcoin is in the green. Well, no, not anymore. We're back in a moment.
5: At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need.
7: Is there anything you can't do?
5: Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS. Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything.
8: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you
2: Welcome back, everybody. Let's drill down into some of the sectors making big moves this afternoon. The Dow down 700 and change. We were down 1100 at the lows. Christina Partsenevelis looking at the slide in semis for us. Kate Rooney has a closer look at the crypto volatility. Julia Borston on the sell-off and streaming. And Deirdre Bosa is tracking the tech
9: names getting hit the hardest. And we'll go reverse order here. Deirdre, let's start with you. Well, Kelly, the Nasdaq was down more than four percent earlier today, so we are currently off of those lows. But still, it is that high-growth complex that continues to bleed. Some of the big names, AMD, Airbnb, Tesla, among the biggest decliners this morning on the Nasdaq. Kathy Woods, ARK ETF, a good indicator of this trade. It is down. Uh, it was down more than 4%, more than 6% today. And as Wall Street Bets notes, Berkshire Hathaway now outperforming on a year to date and 12 month basis. Classic growth versus value, Wood versus Buffett. Mega Cap Tech not providing support for the sector today either. Amazon was down more than 3%, firmly in bear market territory, off more than 20% from its 52 week high. Microsoft Alphabet not that far from that technical level either. Earnings this week, of course, will be crucial. You've got IBM tonight, classic legacy. Legacy tech value play that has been better shielded from recent volatility. Microsoft, Apple, Tesla later on in the week. Over the last 30 minutes or so, Kelly, we have seen the Nasdaq continue to pair some of those earlier losses. So some of the names in the black now include software and the hardest hit stay at home names. Zoom was briefly in positive territory. Datadog last I looked a few moments ago was up nearly three percent. Adobe slightly higher as well. Back yeah, to you. I have to keep checking as I'm saying because yeah, it's fast it's moving. moving quick.
2: But those are some places to watch maybe for a turn Uh, here to help us sift through for some trades is Mark Tepper. He's founder and CEO of Strategic Wealth Partners. Mark, it's good to see you. It's been a while. So let's go through as we hit each of these uh, areas of the market today. Love to know. Let's start with tech. Some of the names Deirdre mentioned, which are you buying and which are you selling today?
13: So it's obvious that we are officially now in a correction, and and it's all about risk off right now. And tech, if you think about it, is really ground zero when it comes to risk in, in investors' portfolios. Nobody wants to own any of the high multiple, high valuation, high growth stocks right now. But, I mean, this is when smart people who make smart decisions make money. And we're waiting right now for the opportunity to pounce on some names. I think there's a lot of good names out there on sale. The question is, when do you pull that trigger? And my take, Kelly, is the sell-off isn't going to stop until Apple hits its 200-day moving average in that 147 to 148 range. Hmm. The market's just not washed out yet. But you take a look at a, at a name like Microsoft. It's down almost 20% from its peak. Hybrid cloud is a thing of the future. It's trading below its 200-day moving average. I would buy more right now. Could it go lower? Absolutely. But I, I wouldn't be mad at myself if right. I bought some. Today. No,
2: you'd be insane to try to bottom take any of this. It's just once yep. it gets to a good price. There you go. If you think that's where it is. And it's real quickly as a follow up, Mark, people have been talking about Apple as a tell. I remember, you know, even we were talking about with Mike Novogratz, he said, like, this is the we hit three trillion for whatever reason. Apple is becoming the stock to watch. Do so you think we're about ten dollars above the level where you'd want to buy it?
13: I think so. I mean, I'd probably buy more at around 150, but I think the sell-off kind of starts to, to come to a conclusion right around that 147, 148 level. It is. It's kind of like the bellwether of the market right now. It's
2: fascinating. All right. Stay right there. Uh, As we talk tech, let's get specific about the semiconductors. The SMH is down 3% today, 15% for January now. Christina Parts and Evelis here with the latest. This one peaked back in November, Christina.
0: Yeah, it did. But we're still, if we're talking about the uh, components, you're seeing carnage across the board today, especially in chips, applied materials, Micron, Qualcomm, LAM Research, all down about between about uh, zero or 1% and 3%. But NVIDIA is one of the biggest losers, having the third largest impact on the NASDAQ right now. It's tracking for its worst month since July 2008. And overall, it's about, uh, it's coming off those uh, lows uh, over 6% higher. And then you've got AMD, Advanced Micro Devices. This is one of the NASDAQ's 100 biggest decliners to start the year. Already 32% off its 52-week high and about 7% lower today, or 6.5% lower today. Keep in mind, just last week, Piper Sandler analyst downgraded AMD Warning of a slowdown in the PC market for 2022, and of course, that semis wouldn't be spared by the rising treasury yields environment. AMD's biggest competitor, though, Intel, faring a little bit better. And the CEO, Pat Gensler, uh, is boastful. Earlier this month, he posted a video on LinkedIn stating his company's PC processors will never be beaten by AM- AMD, and that AMD is, quote, in the rear view mirror. If you compare both companies year to date, he might feel vindicated. Intel is only about, uh, yeah, 2% lower than. Uh, this month, and then you've got uh, AMD down about 22%. And given the drop in its consistu- constituents, we're going to come first full circle. The Van X Semis ETF is also trending
2: lower today. Kelly? Christina, thank you. Mark, what would you do with the chips?
0: Um,
13: look, I mean, chips are outperforming software. That's not saying a lot, though. Um, but when it comes to chips, I'm a long term bull. We don't have enough chips in this world. And we need better more advanced, more efficient chips so that we can do pretty much everything we want to do as a society. I own NVIDIA. I own AMD. I'm sticking with them. I'm not selling them. I'm not saying I would be buying more right here. Um, NVIDIA is still a bit extended, but it's back around its 200-day moving average. And they're in all those highest growth end markets, autonomous driving, AI, data center gaming. Um, AMD obviously probably had quite a bit of pull forward during the pandemic in regards to their, their notebooks unit. But they're light years ahead of Intel technology wise. So, look, those are both great companies. And I think as an investor, if you're confident that three to five years from today, they're gonna be higher. Kelly, as we already mentioned, you really can't pick the bottom. You you just got to know their good names and and be willing to buy them or hold them.
2: Yeah, exactly. Mark, we appreciate it as we watch that sector struggle a little bit. Same with crypto today. And by the way, all weekend, this one was really setting the tone. It doesn't stop trading. So we all watched that slide happen and then the market kind of catching up to it. Uh, Kate Rooney, maybe now the market's catching up to the fact that Bitcoin's positive by 2%.
14: That's right. Yeah. Bitcoin never sleeps. Markets are open on the weekend. It makes it busy for all of us finance and tech reporters. Uh, but it's bouncing. It was just back above 36,000. So keep an eye on that. But this morning, Bitcoin and Ethereum hit a six-month low. The sell-off really is the effect of cryptocurrencies becoming more mainstream recently. As macro funds have bought Bitcoin in the past couple of years, they're now turning to cryptocurrencies as one of the first places they sell to get liquidity. Analysts are also pointing to retail investors losing some conviction. Glassnode saying this morning that the lion's share of losses are coming from newer buyers. They call those short-term holders who appear to be taking any opportunity to get their money back. Right now, Glassnode estimates only 32% of Bitcoin's market cap is held at a profit. So there's a lot of investors right now underwater. And one way to measure investor sentiment is something called the fear and greed index. That is now at a 13% out of 100. Last month, for example, it was around a 39, to put it in perspective. And leverage, that is another big theme we've talked about in recent weeks, Kelly. Noelle Atchison at Genesis is telling me there was a big spike in bearish sentiment in the options market this morning, so something to keep an eye on as well, and a lot of liquidations. In the past 24 hours alone, there's been more than $470 million in leveraged position, positions unwound. That's only in the past day or so. Kelly.
2: Wow, that I love the fear and greed index. Didn't know Bitcoin had one. So, now I'm looking at the one for the market, we're <laughs> only at 37, uh, so we're not into the extreme fear zone yet, according to CNN's gauge anyway. Kate, thank you very much. Mark Tepper, how would you trade crypto?
13: Anyone who said crypto was an inflation hedge is probably hurting quite a bit right now. It's obviously a risk asset, and it's okay to hold it as an asset class for diversification purposes, but you need to understand the risks. I mean, crypto benefited substantially throughout the pandemic from all that additional liquidity. I mean, there was trillions in fiscal stimulus, and they either went into your Coinbase account or your Robinhood account. But that tailwind is now gone. So you need to size it appropriately in your portfolio. I always recommend to my clients, own as much as you're comfortable losing. Maybe that's 5%. Maybe it's 10%. If you're 22 years old, maybe it's 80% of your portfolio, but own as much as you're comfortable losing. And if a 10X is for you, great.
2: You think the 22 year old can lose 80% of their money?
13: I'll tell you, I read a, an article in the Wall Street Journal last week that it said uh, millennials are now shunning financial advisors. And there was a story about some guy who was 25 years old. He had 90% of his money in crypto and said, who needs a financial advisor when I can buy crypto and 10x my money every year?
2: Right. But he's I think probably, even even he would probably say, I don't want to lose. That's not that's not all money that I, I would. You know, what I'm I, saying. Would yeah. you. No. I would agree with you.
13: I would agree with you. Yeah, he's probably, he's probably rethinking that strategy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Point taken, point taken. Uh, Let's move along finally and get a check on the streaming stocks, which are not escaping some of the damage today, especially Netflix. At one point, it was down about 10% uh, towards the 350 zone. Julia Borson is here with more. What's going on here, Julia?
15: Well, what we're really seeing here is that the streaming stocks have been plummeting on growing concerns about slowing subscriber growth. And this, of course, follows Netflix's disappointing outlook last week. Netflix, those shares are down about 6.5% today after Jeffries downgraded the stock to hold from buy, saying the company may need to shift to focus more on video games. And this follows a number of downgrades and price cuts on Friday. Roku shares are also down about 1%. And then uh, you see Roku down about nearly 1%. Disney shares off nearly 3%. On those concerns, that Netflix's performance could mean that their subscriber growth will also be lower than anticipated when they report. And CNBC's Parent Comcast, it is of course exposed to streaming trends through Peacock as well as its broadband business. That stocked down about 1% today, but getting an upgrade from RBC to sector from sector perform to outperform, the analysts saying they think concerns about broadband subscriber trends are overblown. Guys, back uh, over to you. Julia, thank
2: you. Thank you very much. And Mark, wrap things up for us. Any of these names jump out to you as a good buy here?
13: Yeah. So let's pump the brakes and put a few things in perspective. So the first things first, Netflix right now is trading at its pre-COVID high. So you can get all that that COVID-related subscriber growth for free. You're getting a company that that is now positive earnings-wise. They can flip cash flow positive if they want. Operating margins are in the high teens, low 20s. It's a much better company today than in 2019, yet it's priced the same. Could it go lower? Sure. Could it could it likely be much higher in three to five years? I think yes. And then you look at Disney at around 130 bucks. Back in, I don't know if it was 2018 or 2019, whenever they announced Disney Plus, the stock went from just under 120 to over 130 overnight. If that thing falls to 120 and I can buy the parks and, and the cruises and all that stuff and be patient with them and get Disney Plus for free, yeah. why wouldn't I do that? So at around 120 bucks, Disney looks very attractive, too.
2: All right. Mark, thank you very much for the specifics, the trades. We really you. appreciate it today. Mark Tepper with Strategic Wealth Partners. Up next, we'll have a lot more on the sell-off, including some bright spots. As we head to break, here's two of them in the Dow. Travelers and Home Depot are in the green right now. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to the exchange. Let's get right to Dom Chu for a market flash, Dom.
3: All right, we mentioned before the sea of red, but we continue to monitor the sell-off here. We do see some relative outperformance, green on the screen, among some defensive sectors like consumer staples and, and utilities. But as you can see behind me here, we are seeing some resistance to the sell-off from the homebuilder stocks. That includes names like Pulte Group, Toll Brothers, Lennar. Some of those names you can see there green, 1.5% gains for Pulte Group and one a quarter for Lennar. Today's moves come as we see 10-year U.S. Treasury yields slip lower after a strong start to the year. On a year-to-date basis, that move higher in yields has had the homebuilders, though, under pressure, you can see. Two of the ETFs that track some of those names, the Spider Home Builders, XHB is the ticker. Also, the ITB are both down around 15% or so far this year. So as we continue to watch the moves in Treasury yields, interest rates overall, keeping on some of those home builder, home builder names, Kelly, uh, standing out as green in a sea of red. I'll send things back over
2: Very to you. Very interesting. Dom. thanks. Meantime, the activists are out in force. Kohl's receiving competing takeover offers from private equity firms Sycamore and Acacia, Acacia, how do you say it, research, backed by Starboard. And then Unilever, where Tryon's Nelson Peltz has amassed a large stake, although according to David Faber, he's not yet approached Unilever with any requests. And now Peloton, Blackwell's partner is an activist shareholder going after Peloton in a blistering letter Urging them to fire CEO John Foley and put itself up for sale. Now, all three companies mostly hire today. Peloton now up seven percent. Joining me to discuss is Wall Street Journal M&A reporter Carol Lombardo. She broke the Peloton story over the weekend. And Dan Primack, who is business editor at Axios. Welcome to you both, Carol. I'll just start. Peloton. This one would seem to be. I hate to say, it, but kind of an obvious play at this point, right?
16: It's very true I mean Kelly if you look at the shares they've been on a downward trend now for about a year down from their high eighty percent. So I think a lot of activists and a lot of potential buyers have probably already been eyeing this one. It'll be interesting to see now that the first activist is out of the gate calling for some pretty extreme measures you know getting a new CEO and putting the company up for sale. It'll be interesting to see how the company responds.
2: Yeah, I guess Kohl's may be a little bit less obvious to me, Dan, as a, as a candidate. But there's been retail always seems to garner these kinds of pressures.
17: Yeah, they do. And and, and in part, because the, the way to unlock value, or at least the theoretical way to unlock value, is often so obvious, right? You've got the brands, but you've also got the real estate, right? It's the old Eddie Lampert-Sears argument. Right. That didn't work. But we're seeing it with others. We always see it with others. Because remember, Kohl's is really an off-mall department store. They're not sitting inside of Simon properties. They're generally in parking lots elsewhere. So there's a belief, at least, that there's always this value to unlock in it by kind of splitting up the assets.
2: The shares are up 33 percent today. Kara, do we call it a trend? I mean, is it just random if this is all kind of percolating at the same time?
16: It's interesting. I mean, what's interesting to me is that they're they're both at very different uh, stages. Kohl's, of course, has had activists on its case for for two years now. This is the second year in a row it's being targeted by multiple activists at once. And is this finally enough pressure to uh, to force some major changes there? Whether it's like Dan said, some transaction involving the real estate or a full sale or or something else, you know, Peloton. We're just at the beginning of the story. I feel like the company still has a chance in their earnings, which are which are weeks away here, to uh, to come up with some some new strategy that's that's going to get the shareholder trust back. But You know they've they've been through that before, so we'll see how that goes. And now I can't resist, Dan,
2: asking what do you think Peloton could or should or or will do here? Okay,
17: and and in full disclosure, I'm a user of Peloton as a customer, uh, and and like the product. Bias. I I admit my bias up front. It's pretty public bias. That said, look, I I don't think John Foley is going to step down. There is a dual class share structure. So I don't think they're going to take a fire sale price. You know, if some private equity firm or strategic comes and, you know, offers a 10 or 20 percent, maybe even 30, 40 percent premium. I I think that that earnings is going to be really important. I will say in the interim, though, because that's about a week and a half away. I am very surprised that they are not coming out somehow and telling their story a little bit more, not just in a letter, but in an interview, whether it be on CNBC or with me or somewhere else. February 8th is a lifetime away, and and they're kind of letting other people define them in the interim.
2: Very interesting. We'll take that as a pitch. We welcome Peloton on any time. Talk about the story and the company. And Kara, finally, uh, as we just kind of look through the the narrative here and everything that's happened with it. Should we
16: expect Peloton
2: itself to be a takeover target?
16: I mean, I think, like I said, the pressures on that stock, I think, have put it in focus for, for acquirers already. But what is really going to matter is, does the company have an alternative plan that will be just as compelling for shareholders as, as a sale? And we haven't yet heard from them. I think that's the important thing. Um, but, you know, one example last week, Uh, Activision selling to Microsoft, that came in a similar situation. Activision shares were under pressure. They got a soft approach from Microsoft saying, hey, we're here if you want to talk. I'm sure Peloton is getting similar approaches or already has been for several months.
2: That's a great point. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Carol Lombardo with The Wall Street Journal and Axios is Dan Primack. And up next, the Dow falling for the seventh straight session for the first time in nearly two years. Whether there's more pain ahead and how to trade it next. Welcome back, everybody. The Nasdaq is still having one of its worst months ever and is down almost 17% from the high. So what do you do here? Joining me now is Steve Grasso, Grasso Global CEO. Steve, it's a lot better look this afternoon than it was just a couple hours ago. I don't know what changed.
18: Yeah, pr- probably nothing, Kelly. So when, when you have to think about this, everyone is panicking. And they always ask you as a trader, does it feel panicky? It hasn't felt panicky up until when Netflix really fell off the cliff Hmm. that was the next leg so people are starting to look at the economy and saying how is the underlying economy that's all that an investor should care about the underlying economy is sound manufacturing pmis are good europe has been beating asia has been beating the only weakness that we saw in the us was on the service component and that was caused from the omicron virus. So I don't know why people are panicking over the economy, because now if you have the Fed, who Goldman is tripping over themselves to raise to to increase how many times they think uh, the FOMC is going to raise rates, what happens if the FOMC only rates half of what the market has already digested? We rally, right? What happens if they raise? So, so my point is, if they raise less, then what happens to the dollar? The dollar comes in. So that decreases the pressure on the front end of the curve, which will increase the steepening of the yield curve, so value outperforms in that scenario.
2: but i'm i'm I so agree with you, and if someone asked me, I'd probably give them basically the same explanation of how this is all likely to play out. But what if this year is different because they have to keep tightening?
18: Why would they have to keep tightening? They, they, if, they, if they have to keep tightening, then they're robotic. They have to react to whatever the pressures are on the economy. So if inflation, they said transitory, everyone says they were wrong, it depends on what you call transitory. If you, you would agree with me and they would agree that a tremendous amount of this pressure was caused to the supply chain due to the pandemic. In every metric that we can look at, the pandemic is subsiding everyone would agree on that. What does that mean? Inflation should be coming in. So if they want to get robotic and just raise rates in the face of an abyss, then they can do that. But I don't think they're going to do that.
2: Well, let's boil this down to where you're positioning. So you're, you, are you positioning then kind of the value trades? What, what are some examples of what this all should look like? What should people do right now with maybe some of the opportunities this market is giving them?
18: Yeah, so I think value is going to, you know, we're not looking at 2020 when people thought that the pandemic was going to ruin the economy. We're looking at an economy that has recovered or will recover. So you want to be invested into the value names, the paper names, the chemical names. But let me tell you, Kelly, very hard to convince someone not to buy Apple. Very hard to convince somebody not to buy Facebook. I own Apple. So Apple for me is a lifelong event, not a not a cyclical event, not a buy the dip event. So yes, you can you can buy large cap tech if it's your fear mechanism to do so. You could hold large cap tech, but you should be invested in value plays right now, and that's where you should be looking for bargains.
2: Quick name or two?
18: Yeah, you, you know my names: Trinseo, <laughs> Dow, WRK, which is which is WestRock. Those are the names that you want to be invested in. I'll give you the other one that I talk about constantly, and it's doubled and tripled, Capri, C-P-R-I. That gets thrown out with all of retail. All right. That's high-end retail.
2: You like Coors? You like, what is it, Kate Spade?
18: Versace. 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 Jimmy Choo and Versace. (laughs)
2: That's right. That's right. Steve, thank you very much today. Steve Grasso. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
8: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.